this is a response to some beautiful thoughts by Matt Segal, who was himself responding to a dialogue between Rowan Williams and Ian McGilchrist, which unfortunately wasn't recorded, but was full of beautiful things. Ian McGilchrist and Rowan Williams agreed about many things, as you might imagine, as they ranged across actually many traditions, including Taoism, Indian philosophies, Buddhism, and Christianity. Um, at one point, the opening lines to the Tao Te Ching were, were celebrated. The Tao that can be named is not the real Tao. And that sense of things was palpably present in their discussion. But they also disagreed, and their difference arose in relation to process thought, with Ian stressing his, I think, inclination towards becoming, being the most basic facet of, of reality, whereas Rome Williams would stress being. Um, to put it differently, Ian seems to be stressing relationality as the ground of things, whereas Rome Williams would stress the transcendent. And it's that kind of difference which Matt Segal picked up on and which I want to reflect on here again. And I wanted to respond in the spirit of the theologians whom Dante in the Divine Comedy meets in the heaven of the sun. They disagreed on earth, these theologians, but here in the sun, they join with their own voices in the divine voice and divine light, because they were very conscious that their words are trying to reach beyond themselves, being as accurate as they possibly can, a word that Emma Gilchrist used in his dialogue, but that accuracy being as conscious of its edge as is, as Rowan Williams might say, um, so that by listening to different viewpoints in a dialogue, something further can be felt and seen, even amidst the disagreements. So in that spirit, I think a key point for Rome Williams about the relationship between transcendence and imminence is not that God, as it were, needs to be kept wholly other, as if God must be somehow kept pure from creation. It's actually quite the opposite, that God needs to be transcendent in order that he can be completely and freely imminent in the world. It's that freedom in space and time because it's also beyond space and time that Williams is pointing to when he talks about the divine imminence being aided by transcendence. Now you can think of this I think a little bit like say the relationship between a parent and a child where the parent on the one hand is in a dyadic relationship with the child and the child needs to feel that to feel that it has a place in the world but what as it were the child doesn't know about directly anyway though it might feel it is that the parent also is independent of the child and that means that it can hold or can contain the child's life and draw it to more than the child knows in that moment it's it's not just a relationship of dyadic qualities, as it were, um, two people. It's actually a triadic relationship 
um, because of this pole of the relationship that is outside of the relationship, though holding and containing it and making it possible. The relationship between the parent and the child is asymmetric, and it's because of the parent's freedom that it's able to be intimate with the child. That, I think, is the parallel sense that Williams is driving at. Similarly, his Christology is about Christ being present and drawing by allure rather than persuasion or power. Um, I've heard Williams talk about a model for this being Christ standing before Pilate. Um, Pilate stands for the worldly use of power, and Christ is silent before that. It's a bit like Dostoevsky's Christ and the Grand Inquisitor as well, where the Grand Inquisitor um, complains that Christ is offering too much by this silence, by this allure, and Jesus in that scene kisses the Grand Inquisitor, does something that completely cuts across the world that the Grand Inquisitor is in, the world that Pilate is in as well, suggesting more that can't be contained within the world that Pilate and the Grand Inquisitor occupy. So Christ, you might say, is like a mirror of life, but also, as William Blake would say, Christ is the imagination of life that not only reflects back, but in that reflecting suggests more. It's in reflecting the minute particulars, to use Blake's phrase, that eternity is seen. Again, that's this relationship between transcendence and imminence um, that I think Williams is pointing towards. Similarly, Ian and Rowan Williams talked about the relationship between being and becoming. And I think um, Ian McGilchrist is tilting towards becoming being prior. That's, as it were, what he's getting from process theology um, whether or not that's quite right, um, given what Matt says, I'm not completely sure. But nonetheless, that seems to be where he's tilting. But I think being must be prior. I mean, a, a philosophical way of putting it would be to say that being is, as it were, the condition of becoming. Um, so in that sort of logical sense, it's more basic. But that's a rather abstract way of putting it. And I think a more felt way of putting it is the sense that awareness itself is what all experiences, thoughts, perceptions, all becoming must rest in. It's awareness that shares it all because it can see it all. It can say yes to it all because it's also underneath, above, around, as Augustine might say, closer to us than we are to ourselves. That's really the key point here that allows all this becoming um, because being is prior. Um, it's also true that our being and God's being is therefore one being. Um, how could it be otherwise um, when our becoming rests in being? which must be a reflection, a participation in the divine being. Another reflection on this would be that the occasions of becoming, be they experiences, thoughts, um, desires, um, 
they are known by the awareness itself. We, as it were, don't have consciousness, you might say. We are consciousness. And it's within that consciousness that thoughts, experiences, and so on arise. That's another way of reflecting upon the nature of experience and seeing that being is therefore prior to becoming. I think this is a way of making sense of Aristotle's unmoved mover as well. It, it sometimes is thought to be a kind of deistic god. Um, Matt didn't say this, but sometimes you get the sense that it's as if God is the machine maker um, that sets the machine in motion. Um, but I think that what Aristotle and Plato understood by that was something more dynamic, was something organic. Um, you know, they didn't live after um, the mechanical philosophy. They lived before it was ever thought of, really. And so the unmoved mover is like the point, source, ever-present origin that by its beauty and radiance draws all things to itself and so causes all things to move, all things to become in that way. It's a sort of parallel action to the sense of Christ standing before Christ silent. And it's important to stress the unmoved element that causes all motion because if God, as it were, were moving too, God were becoming too, it's not hard to imagine a series of kind of oscillations getting set up that might shake the whole thing apart, as it were, and everything in this becoming would therefore fall out of being itself. Um, but I think God's being and our experience of that being, our sense that actually when we turn to awareness itself, it has these qualities of being unchangeable, being steady, being always present across all the occasions and instances of our becoming. That's the way to, I think, understand the unmoved mover. I think this particularly matters in the Christian context because Christianity has developed this powerful sense that there's somehow something that one has got to gain or got to get right. Um, I think it particularly came to the fore in, in the Reformation um, I was reading, actually, that in the beginning of the 16th century, there was a splurge of catechisms, both from the Reformers and from the Catholic Church, stressing this now very powerful modern sense that you've got to believe the right things in order to know the blessing of God, to know salvation. And this has set up a terrible, I think, sense that there's this infinite gap between ourselves and the divine. Um, that there's something which we might unwittingly get wrong and so fall away from God's presence. It, it's the anxiety of modern Christianity. You know, and it's even in the appeals to God being love, um, you know, as if I've got to cling to this love um, to somehow take me out of the pit that I would otherwise fall into. To push Martin Buber's thought a step further, it's not only that there aren't I it, relationships in creation. There aren't even ultimately I-thou relationships in creation. There's only I relationships in creation. The theistic way of putting this would be to say that our I amness rests in the divine I amness. And it's when we see that we can only say I am because of that, that we get this 
deeper perception of transcendence and imminence completely intertwined. The notion of the Godhead comes in here, to use Eichhardt's phrase as well, that which is beyond knowing but is the source of all knowing. And, and Ian recognises this. The apophatic, I think, is going to be crucial in his new work. Um, he recognises that it's because of what we don't know that we have the sense of the sacred. If everything were transparent and known to us, um, then there wouldn't be a sense of the sacred. There would be a sense of possession, perhaps. Um, but that reaching beyond what we can say, what we can know, is crucial. But again, to, as it were, make the case that perhaps Rowan Williams would want to say, um, that's also important because it's in that emptiness of not knowing that the infinite becomes manifest in the finite. Um, it's Meister Eichhardt's sense that beyond love, beyond beauty, beyond all these things actually is a space of nothingness that is actually everything. You know, the images that come to mind here are um, such as in Sufism where um, there's the one divine light that is reflected in as many shards of glass, mirrors, which is the multiplicity of being reflecting the one being. Um, it's all one being, even in the multiplicity, with this paradox that the more we become ourselves in the multiplicity, the more light we gather and so reflect the oneness too. The thing I don't quite get about in McGilchrist's work, much as I respect it, is a certain hesitation, if not resistance, as to how this was acknowledged in the ancient world. So, for example, he's very keen on quoting Heraclitus and the idea that you can't step into the same river twice because um, that speaks to the flux, this becoming that he's drawn towards. But he doesn't seem to want to give due weight to Heraclitus, also remarking that if you listen to the Logos, not just to him, you see that all things are one. And I think Heraclitus has this sense that unity lies within, around, through, underneath, over and beyond flux as well. Um, you get that too in Plato and in the Platonic tradition. Um, Ian's very keen on pointing out the unity in Plato and sort of pulling back from that, but doesn't seem to me to give full weight to the fact that Plato philosophy could really be called erosophy, um, the erotic drawing back through the divine beauty that draws us, which Matt very beautifully spoke about as the eros sort of whispering in our ear. Um, and the fact that Plato wrote only dialogues, um, depicting individual souls, if you like, becoming, um, but becoming in a way that's a return, a recollection, a remembrance, to use the Platonic word, of what always is. Rowan Williams did acknowledge to Ian McGilchrist in the dialogue um, that he can understand how people feel nervous about God um, for obvious reasons and how Ian might want to avoid fully going in that direction um, because he feels that something needs to be made anew and I can completely understand that. Um, and if these process thoughts start to foster that sense um, of something that's been forgotten, something that's been missed, then I'm all for it. Um, but Rome Williams did say that ultimately God's relationship to us is unconditional 
and only then can it be the limitless source of energy that is our energy. Only can it then be the freedom that is our freedom to become and return. Um, and so the relationship between God and creation would be more one of emanation, as it were, God's being, consciousness and bliss can't help but pour forth infinitely, because that's what the infinite is like. Um, and so it's not that God needs the world, um, but that the world is in God. There's no therefore relationship, but with this paradox that that can only be discovered by thinking about relationship, thinking about our becoming and appreciating this awareness, this being, this container that is the dimension beyond dimensions, the eternity beyond time, the um, place beyond space within which all these things happen. Ibn Arabi, the Sufi would say that whether we're walking towards God, walking in God, walking away from God, we're always only discovering more about God. When we're walking away, we're discovering something about the infinite reach of God. And so therefore, knowing God in this mystical sense, quite as much as someone that is more consciously in God, in fact. Another Sufi thought that captures this paradox of being and becoming, for me, is Rumi's observation that we are descending in ever-widening circles of being, whereas it were sinking in our activity back into the being from which that activity springs. And we can feel free doing that in life because the infinite is always ours already. The only question really is, is how we wake up to that in the first place through our sense of I-ness, awareness and our own sense of our being and then bring that into manifest form in our own lives much as the divine brings that into manifest form in the act of creation and incarnation which is both in time but can be in time because it's also eternal.